Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In 2020, following calls to racial justice, U.S. businesses committed over $35 billion toward enhancing racial equity in the workplace. And yet corporate offices remain overwhelmingly white. According to a recent study from McKinsey, less than 30% of corporate managers are people of color. And that's led many black and brown employees to experience discrimination and feel excluded in the workplace. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we hear from individuals who are pushing for greater equity in the workplace. Coming up, what a new wage transparency law in Connecticut could mean for closing the gender and racial pay gap. But first, Minda Hartz. She spent the first 15 years of her career in the corporate world. But in 2015, after years of struggling to fit in, Minda founded the Memo LLC. It's an organization that supports women of color with career development. Her most recent book is Right Within, How to Heal from Racial Trauma in the Workplace. Minda, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here with you. So I mentioned your new book, Right Within, but I actually want to take a step back and talk about your first book, and that's called The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. And you said that that book came out of a weekly newsletter that you wrote about your own experiences in the workplace. Talk to our listeners about that newsletter, how you saw it helping the conversation, and how it turned into that powerful book that you published. Yeah, you know, it's funny when we think about our origin stories, um, I never intended on being an author. (laughs) And um, one of the ways to kind of create self-care in a very toxic work environment that I was in back in 2015 was to write about my experiences. I thought, well, if I am a Black woman experiencing this treatment, maybe there are others who are experiencing this as well. And maybe my story can help somebody else. And so I decided to start writing a Monday memo every Monday in July of 2015. I started putting that out and I talk about salary negotiation. I talk about sponsorship. I talk about micro macroaggressions and it was just an outlet. And the more I started to write about those things, as they say, if you build it, they will come. More people started to subscribe to that newsletter. And I would do that every Monday, even while I was still in my old life. And eventually when I had the opportunity to write a book, I already had these years of Monday memos and I was able to see, you know, what was the content that was resonating with women of color the most. And it was really those early memos that helped inform my book that would come six years later. (laughs) You were working in corporate America and dealing with this toxic environment. And what we also know is that for women, particularly women of color, there is this tendency to suffer or endure in silence because there's this fear that if one is vulnerable and talks about those challenges, it may harm them in their professional life, particularly in spaces where they are the only or one of few. How did you work through that vulnerability to not just talk about your experiences, but to bring other women of color into the conversation who may have been hesitant to do so? 
Yeah, you know, I, I was sitting in those offices in my queue, feeling that that suffering in silence. And I thought, you know, we should be able to thrive in the workplace, not just survive. Audrey Lord talks about we have been pretty much conditioned to value fear over ourselves. And so I thought, you know, what would it look like if we flip that, right? We value ourselves over the fear of somebody saying something about us because our experiences are our experiences. And so I felt like I was waiting on somebody else to tell their story to give me permission to tell mine. And I realized that I actually had a voice. I always had a voice. I just had to decide how to use it. And maybe me activating my voice will be tied to someone else's freedom. And so I didn't just look at it as my opportunity to tell my story or no longer suffer in silence. But I thought if I gave myself permission, maybe that would role model what it looks like for somebody else. And so I saw it as bigger than myself. And I'm so glad that I did, because I think sometimes we just have to see what it could look like to give ourselves that permission. You have not only given yourself that permission, you have empowered others to also give themselves that permission and to live through that. And in 2020, you were recognized for your efforts by LinkedIn as a top voice for equity. How did it feel to, to be awarded that honor but to also carry with it the weight of the responsibility of, as you said, using your voice to empower other people. It was definitely, it's a humbling uh, <laughs> recognition. You know, I never started any of this work for any awards or notoriety, but it is nice to be recognized for the work that, that you do. But the one thing that I will say is I am a beneficiary of so many other women's courage. And it makes me feel good to know that maybe somebody is a beneficiary of my courage, again, to see what that looks like. And if we're all leaning into our courage and pushing aside our caution, then we make the workplace better for the next generation. And so, again, I, I look at these sorts of things as just another amplification for our voices to be heard. You know, when I first started this work, I used to be told, oh, don't make it about race. These things aren't happening. All of those biases <laughs> that would sometimes greet us at any given time. And what I realized that we are the truth tellers, right? We can be the truth tellers. We don't have to wait for someone else to affirm our experiences. And if we're all telling our truth, that's where the accountability lies. One of the things that I appreciate about your work is that in being the truth teller and being a storyteller, you also honor the efforts of those who have come before you. And that intergenerational connection, even in the very title of the book, making that reference and in many ways homage to Shirley Chisholm, who talked about if they don't provide a seat for you at the table, what you should do. Thinking about that linkage to the women who made it possible, who blazed those trails for you and others, what do you see as actionable tips and strategies? Because people may say, look, she's speaking to my experience. I appreciate her for naming it. But now what do I do when I find myself in these situations? I was sitting in many spaces that many women and, and others sit in when you feel like you're the only one or you're going through a certain situation alone, you feel like you, you feel hopeless, right? You feel like there's nothing you could do. Is this ever going to change? And again, we're often waiting on somebody else to do it, but we have so much power and strength inside of our own bones that we just have to activate that. And I realized that dignity, humanity, respect, that should be given to everybody. That should be table stakes, right? That should be company and organizational core values. And if we're not experiencing that as black and brown women in the workplace, then we need to let people know what good looks like for us. And so how I let people know may be different than somebody else's, but I would ask people to investigate and interrogate what does good look like to you, right? You know, what does that look like? And once you figure out what good looks like to you in the workplace, 
figure out what that looks like to have those conversations with people who are not showing you that. I think it's important for us to think about what that could look like because I used to ruminate on certain situations in the workplace and I'd be like, I can't believe Bob did this to me. And half the time, Bob didn't even know I was experiencing this, right? Because I never articulated that this was bothering me. I don't like it when you touch my hair, right? And so I'm upset all day and he doesn't even know why. (laughs) So I'm like, the part of the equation that I can solve is letting people know what good looks like. Now, they may not take ownership, that's on them, but at least I've set boundaries. And that's what I want people to know, that they can set those boundaries and those are your boundaries. So only you can decide what those look like. So once people affirm their agency and setting those boundaries and being clear and unapologetic in establishing those boundaries, it begs the question then, Minda, of What's the role of of allies, or as I like to call them, co-conspirators in that work of reframing the workplace so that it's actually responsive to those points when women, women of color raise them? What should their role be in those spaces? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, allyship, I think that it's nice that we have the term. So now universally people understand what an ally is supposed to do. But now I think we have to move into action. It's not enough for people to call themselves allies, but ask themselves the question, when's the last time somebody has benefited from you being an ally? (laughs) That's a very different question. And I often say, especially in Right Within, you don't have to save the day, but you have to do something. We can't opt into equity. We have to make it mandatory, right? So what would you want someone to do for you if you were the only one in the room or you were experiencing this discrimination? How would you want someone to show up for you? And so I'm asking allies that if you call yourself that, think about what that demonstration looks like. It has to be an action. No one benefits from passive allyship. And so I like to say in the memo, I call it success partners. When I look back on people who've helped me in the workplace, I have receipts that they have demonstrated how allyship has been a benefit to me, right? And we all can benefit. Success is not a solo sport. So I know oftentimes allies think that they have to climb on top of the Empire State Building and do this grand gesture, but it's really, it could be a grand gesture, but it's actually the everyday actions, the emails, the language, those sorts of things. How do you make where you sit, how, how does your seat benefit somebody else's who may not have access that you do? And I think when we show kind of the spectrum of allyship, you know, some people get nervous. They think that they have to holler out into the Zoom call, don't aggress Minda, right? And so that's fearful for folks, right? But there's so many other areas and ways to show up for people and people just have to figure out what that looks like. And again, all of this is really rooted in courage. I like the notion of a success partner because it shows that it's not about what you're doing for other people. It's really about what you're doing for your team and your role in that and how we all benefit when other people feel that they are affirmed in the workplace. But one of the challenges that we often encounter in these spaces is that people know the terminology and they know the buzzwords, right? Implicit bias. Most people in the workplace think they know what that's about or microaggression because people have mastered the language of the the day. But the challenge comes in, in calling something a microaggression, people think that the impact is lessened when at the end of the day, an aggression is an aggression. When you think about the role of the harm that is played out in the workplace from these microaggressions like touching someone's hair or violating those boundaries, 
What do you see them in terms of their impact on, in particular, women of color in the workplace who often feel they have to justify why that microaggression is damaging and just as damaging as the more overt forms of discrimination? Yeah, that was really the impetus for why I felt like I needed to write the book right within because many of us have started to normalize this treatment. Oh, that's just how it is. I know I told myself that, well, you're a Black woman network, Minda, this is just how it is. Get your paycheck and go home and keep it moving, right? But I realized that, no, I, I should be able to enjoy and do the best work of my career like everybody else is doing. And I shouldn't have to have this emotional burden outside of my job description to try to manage all my co- co-workers' emotions, but yet they don't have enough respect to try to manage mine. So what I realized is two things can be true at the same time. People might not intend harm, but the impact is that. And if the impact is harmful, then we should be trying to figure out how to get to a solution so that we weed out those behaviors. And I think sometimes in the workplace, because we haven't always been comfortable talking about race or even given the permission to call things racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever is or discrimination that's present, because we are normally dismissed when those things happen, we haven't always had the right tools to be able to engage in effective communication or conflict resolution. And so people make it about them, right? So if I say I'm experiencing this, oh, I'm not racist. I'm actually not calling you that. I'm telling you that what you said, this is how it landed on me. I'm making you aware of it so that you don't do it again. Isn't that the goal, right? That should be the goal. And I think once people take their ego out of it and understand that when I'm not aggressed at work, then you know what happens? I get to do my best work. You get to do your best work. And that's good for business, right? And so when we realize that weeding out toxic behaviors is actually good for the bottom line, then we can say, you know what? This is not helpful. And if so-and-so is just being so-and-so, but that's hurting other people, then we need to weed out that behavior. And so I, what I hope happens is women of color, people of color, aren't the ones that always have to leave these environments because they keep getting aggressed, right? Because if you're in those environments, eventually you're gonna wanna leave, right? And then that's a retention issue. And so what if we think about the solution so that people don't have to leave, but we actually get to the root of the problem? When we return, more from our conversation with author and workplace consultant, Minda Hartz. She'll offer strategies for companies to rebuild trust with their employees of color and how a new wage transparency law in Connecticut could help build generational wealth for communities of color. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. On today's show, we're hearing from experts about how we can make corporate workspaces more equitable for all. Later, we'll hear from the director of the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund about the importance of wage transparency and fostering a healthier and more inclusive workplace. But now we return to our conversation with author and workplace equity consultant, Minda Hartz. She's also founder and CEO of the Memo LLC. It's a group dedicated to empowering women of color for success in corporate America. I asked Minda to talk about the decision to start the Memo and how she's committed to investing in the careers of other women. We often talk about women in the workplace, but what we haven't focused on is 
what women are missing from that conversation, right? When we say women in the workplace, typically that means white women and then everyone after. And I'm saying women of color are not an asterisk. We're not an addendum. We're part of the sentence too. And so let's shine this equitable light. If How do we make the workplace work for everybody? And the memo LLC just encompasses those factors of saying equity has to be present. Equity can't be opt-in. Equity has to be mandatory. And so in order for us to get to equitable solutions, we need everyone at the table. If you don't know how to do that, then there are resources to help you manage diverse talent, find and retain diverse talent. And so I just want to make sure that women of color are at the tables that they need to be at, right? Not every table is for us. And understanding that too is important. And then also if maybe creating your own. I mean, I left corporate America and created my own table. So there are various paths toward success. And I think it's important for us to know that we do have options, that we don't have to settle for anything. I want to pick up on something you just mentioned. You left corporate America. You've always had this entrepreneurial spirit and you've created your own space. But in the memo, you also talk about this concern that if women, particularly women of color, continue to leave these institutions or that corporate space, that those spaces may never change because they just think we'll just buy out our time. How do you navigate those two which which seem like competing ideas that we need to invest in the entrepreneurial tradition of Black women and women of color, but at the same time, we need to be at the table in those corporate spaces so they don't have an excuse to just continue the status quo. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting juxtaposition. And I really started my work because I didn't want Black and brown women to feel like they were forced out of their dreams, that they had to defer their dreams. I unfortunately was pushed out of my dream, right? I, I had never had any intentions on being my own CEO, right? I wanted to climb that corporate ladder, but at some point you have to choose yourself if you're being mistreated, right? And so for me, I wanted to be able to use my voice and shine a light to say women, Black women in particular, shouldn't be forced into entrepreneurship. They should have a choice, right? They should be able to choose to stay as an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, but we shouldn't have, oh, this is a last resort. And so I want to make the workplace better so that we have options just like other people do. And so I'm here to say we can make these spaces better to where we aren't forced out of our dreams and in our careers. And I think you have to make certain groups aware that this is happening so that we can get to equitable solutions. And so for me, you know, I never, people ask me, do you think you'd ever go back to corporate America? I never say never, you know, I get offers all the time, but I want to make the workplace better for, for all of us. And so until I see that that is better, you know, I'm going to continue expanding my table and, and being a voice for those who haven't quite tapped into their voices yet. So let's talk about the expansion of that table. Your newest book is called Right Within, and it focuses on resilience and healing from trauma in the workplace. Before we talk about the substance of the book, share with our listeners the motivation behind the title, Right Within. Yes. Lauren Hill said, how are you going to win if you ain't right within? And I really started to marinate on that. And I thought, okay, well, if the companies have these microaggression trainings and unconscious bias, you know, and -and so-and-so wasn't there on that day, then that shouldn't dictate my healing journey if they get their tools or not. I can control my healing. And I wanted to talk about what healing could, and freedom essentially could look like from these traumas that many of us have experienced in the workplace, because Erica Badu also said, all those bags going to get in your way and pack light. So I want us to be able to pack light so that we can live our fullest lives. 
a friend and I were having a conversation the other day and she said to me, you know, my department is about to have this mandatory diversity training and I want to opt out of it because for many people, those become traumatic experiences because you're expected to relive and perform your pain so that other people get it. When you think about the substance of this book and and the work that you're doing, what does real healing look like for women of color? Well, first I'll say that healing is not a one-time event, but a lifestyle. You know, I'm still healing from 15 years of corporate trauma, right? So every day I'm committed to my healing. And when I feel like I'm triggered or there's certain things that I now am aware of that trigger me, I, I realize how important my maintenance is. And that means I'm creating space so that I can maintain my healing. And so the one thing that I would encourage people to do is to first acknowledge that you've been harmed. Because the main thing that we have had to endure is being told that our pain doesn't matter, that these things aren't happening to us when we know that they are. And so part of our healing is acknowledging that harm has been caused and we should have never been exposed to it in the first place. And so once we realize that we don't have to sweep anything else under the rug, that's where that healing can begin to ruminate. I love that you also tell women that understanding our trauma means that we don't have to compare our trauma. We don't have to order that trauma to say, yeah, that was bad, but this was really bad in order for us to move toward healing. Another concept that you introduce in the book that I think is so powerful is about restoration agreements. What is a restoration agreement and what does it look like in the workplace? Yes, it's one of my favorite things about the book, because I think at the core of this, why we're doing our healing, obviously, we have these workplaces that have not fully healed, right? And I think it's important for our managers and leaders to realize that, for example, last year, many companies and organizations made commitments, declarations that racial justice is important, that Black Lives Matter, but we have not seen that demonstrated a year later. A lot of the same policies and procedures and practices and about us pages still look the same right? So nothing has happened. And so what I'm saying is we need to restore trust. I can't, as a Black woman sitting in your company or anyone that identifies, you know, outside of dominant majority, if I don't see these things happening, I can't believe what you say. I can't believe that diversity, equity, and law belonging are here because you have not demonstrated that. So what would it look like to rebuild trust? And so I'm asking for some restoration, Right. So, for example, where are those spaces within companies that have been harmful to women of color? In my particular case, team meetings were a very harmful place for me. Right. And so what would it look like to make sure that we're weeding out these sorts of behaviors? Maybe we need what I call equity advisors inside these meetings to make sure that if our managers can't handle some of these behaviors that are taking place, there's some accountability, someone who can step in and say, this is not okay. This meeting is not helpful, right? And here's what we need to do to get it back on track. Minda should not always be being called Mindy inside the meetings or whatever the case may be, whatever microaggression, you know, that person is experiencing. And so I think it's very important for us to look at it. Hiring practices. Do we say that we want more women of color in the C-suite, but we have not hired a single one? What would it look like now to put in restoration agreements to say, you know, we're not going to hire the next person until we have a diverse slate of candidates, right? And so being very intentional about what we're doing to restore faith, trust inside and belonging, inclusion, essentially inside of our companies. And I do think that managers and leaders need to take a hard look on restoring the faith and trust and building relationships with people of color in the workplace. Thinking about your point of restoring trust and how, as you said, 
those team meetings were often problematic. I'm thinking about it in the context of where we are now in this pandemic, where many organizations are thinking about what they call the return to work, but we all know that people have been working often more, but actually about the return to the office or return to the space. And I'm thinking in the context of what you just said, how challenging that is for women of color to think, at least I didn't have to deal with the same level of harm because I was working remotely, or I could think about things that affirm me and sustain me beyond these toxic spaces. What's the message you would give to employers then of thinking about these restoration agreements, thinking about a more active way of countering that so it doesn't fall on the person who's been harmed what should they be doing as they plot out these next steps? Yeah, that's a great point. I think the main thing is not being focused on telling people, hey, just be back here January 15th or whatever, some arbitrary date right? and say, we got to get back to normal. No, actually, what we should be focused on is getting back to better. So if there were certain groups that were experiencing harm, what are we doing to make sure that they're returning to an environment that's safe? This really boils down to psychological safety people not being full of fear at every turn doing their work. And so there was a report that came out a couple months ago that that interviewed Black employees, a a lot of different employees, but one particular stat that I'll share here, 54% of Black employees said that they felt like they belonged at their companies for the first time working from home based off of what you just said, because they're not exposed to all of those macro and microaggressions that they actually can just focus on the real work. So a lot of people don't want to go back to work and rightfully so. So if I'm a manager or a leader, I would say, you know what? We have black employees here. And if they felt that way before, why am I telling them to come back to an unsafe environment? What are we doing to make sure that we're putting restoration agreements so that people feel safe to return, right? And I think that that's what people should be thinking about, not getting back to work, but what does back better look like? Do we have the right managers in place? If we know that there's certain managers that are toxic, should they be managing? people of color or LGBTQ, maybe they aren't the right managers now going into the future of work. And I think we have to be very clear and careful and intentional about who we say leads us, who's managing and those sorts of things, because maybe those aren't the people that are most equitable at this time and where we want to take the company going forward. But, you know, leaders and managers have to decide what type of workplace they want to create. There's a lot that's changed over this last year and a half, 18 months. And as you mentioned, some of it has been for the good of people saying, I feel more connected because I'm able to set my terms. But some may also ask how much has changed in the six years since you started doing this work? Are there spaces where you're seeing improvements that you think we should lift up to say, here's an example of what's possible? You know, I know that no workplace is perfect, but I will say when I started this work, The conversations that we're having today were not the conversations that I was fighting for people to hear that women of color were having different experiences back in 2015, 2016. So the fact that now I'm even able to go into companies and talk about racial trauma as a point of we need to fix it and maybe it's present here. That was something that I wasn't even able to get in the door to talk about because people weren't willing to be self-aware enough to say two things can be true at the same time. We might not attend this harm, but it's here. So let's not focus on so much that, but let's focus on the solution, right? But we can't, we can't name what we can't confront, right? So we have to name it first 
And so now that we're able to talk about these things out loud, before we were told, again, don't play the race card, don't make it about race, you're taking it the wrong way. And now we can actually talk about it out loud in a way that we weren't able to do even two years ago. And so I am optimistic about the future. And I think it's so important that we don't take our foot off the gas, that we continue to talk about it and make our voices known, not just mine, but all of us, right? And that now we're able to see what companies are really demonstrating that, right? So the companies that win at the end of the day are the ones that will restore the trust that are working toward it. You know, companies like Google and Salesforce, you know, to name a couple, they, they are trying to do, be transparent with data. You know, that's one, one space. And I think once we have data, then we have better, we can tell better stories. We can ask better questions. And I just think that some things are more accessible to us now than they ever were before. And we get to make, we have choices and we have options now that we might not have had before. So I'm really optimistic about the future as it pertains to, you know, Black women in particular. So let's talk about your optimism for the future. You mentioned for Black women, you have an an upcoming book called You Are More Than Magic. And that book is speaking directly to young girls of color. What's the message that you share with young people to give them hope that things can get better and that their opportunities can be better? Yes, I'm so excited because, you know, we say this cute mantra, Black girl magic, but not everybody always hears our voices, sees our goals and dreams and aspirations. And I want to amplify the young girls of color that will come behind us, right? You know, that are the next generation. So I want them to be able to own their voice now. They don't have to wait till they get 21 or 41 or 51 to show up for themselves, right? When conflict arises with a teacher, they feel comfortable in having a conversation, right? When difficult conversation with a parent or guardian that they have the tools to say, you know what? I understand that you may not understand what I'm saying, but hear me out right? You know, that their voices matter. And I wish that I would have had some of those tools when I was 15 and 16, because I would have shown up in a different type of way when I started my first corporate job. And so I want our young girls to have the tools way ahead of time so that they can set their boundaries early and they can know their worth much earlier than maybe I did. (laughs) Minda Hart is founder and CEO of the Memo LLC, and she's author of Right Within, how to Heal from Racial Trauma in the Workplace. Minda, thank you so much. Thank you. After the break, what Connecticut's new wage transparency law could mean for closing the gender wage gap. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Women are a vital part of the U.S. workforce, but overall receive far lower wages than their male counterparts. In Connecticut, women earn just 84 cents to every dollar earned by a man. And for Latinas in the state, that number drops to under 50 cents. But a new wage transparency law may finally help close this gap. Janae Woods-Weber is executive director, and Madeline Granado is policy director of the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. It's more commonly known as QUELF. QUELF has pushed for more wage transparency in Connecticut, and it's one of the key supporters of this new law. Janae, Madeline, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having us. 
So Connecticut is on the verge of doing a number of important things when it comes to wage equity and wage transparency. And people like to think we're this progressive state in the Northeast. We are a very resource-rich state. So understanding how that disparity plays out along the, the lines of gender, race, and ethnicity and the intersections across, people may be surprised that that's an issue here in Connecticut. But where do we stack up against other states across the country? Are we an outlier here or is this part of a broader national problem? This is part of a broad national problem. And we know that this is similar to other states. And of course, we get lulled into a sense of complacency here in Connecticut because we think we are a liberal bastion of equality of of all sorts. And really, the systemic inequities that we have seen across the country are also true here in our own state. We simply don't talk about them enough, partly because we don't believe collectively that they exist. So Madeline, we know that they exist. We know that there's work being done. And with all of the challenges that Janae just mentioned, Connecticut has tried to address this problem, and we've seen some progress there. And so in October, uh, a new policy went into effect concerning the disclosure of salary range for a vacant position. Talk to us about what that legislation is attempting to do, and if you've seen any changes or uh, sort of promises of change now that that is in effect. Yeah, thank you. That, that's a great question. So the law that passed in June and went into effect this October really works to accomplish kind of two major things around pay equity and the gender wage gap. So first, the law requires employers to provide, you know, the salary range for positions to job applicants, you know, while they're offering them the job or when the applicant requests that information, um, whichever is earlier in the process. The law also requires employers to provide salary range information to existing employees. We're actually one of the only states, you know, that that did this in our law. They need to provide that information to existing employees, either when they're hired, their position changes with the employer, or when they first request it. The second kind of main component of the law is that it changes our equal pay standard to equal pay for comparable work. Our previous standard, equal pay for equal work, meant that really in order to prove that you were discriminated against at work, um, your job really had to be exactly identical to to who you were being compared to. Um, This is really too high of a standard, you know, especially in today's workplaces. You know, equal pay for comparable work is much more inclusive, and it means that the nature of your work can essentially be different, but still require the same, you know, similar skill and responsibility, et cetera, to be compared, you know, to your coworker. The point you made that it's not just about people coming into the door, but about current employees who are already there is so important because we often talk about these things for new employees, for applicants, especially now, given the challenges and finding employees for certain areas. But giving that information to current employees can also talk about the trajectory of a person's career, particularly for women who often are locked out of those promotional and advancement opportunities. Let me ask a really granular question. To whom does this apply? So is it only public employees or people seeking employment in the public sector in Connecticut? Does every organization and hiring entity have to do this? Is there a public-private divide? To whom is this law going to apply? Yeah, so the law applies to all employers. You know, I I will note that 
you know, the public sector is, is already doing this on, on some scale and research shows that, you know, among public agencies who operate under this really transparent um, and open pay structures, right, where that information is readily available to folks, the wage gap between men and women employees is almost, almost non-existent. So it's, it's really important. And this, this law, I think, is a way to follow the lead of what's already happening, you know, in the, in the public sector. So, Janae, Madeline mentioned this this changing in the language from equal pay for equal work to equal pay for comparable work. Who gets to decide that definition? Because there is so much subjectivity built into that. But also when we think about the, the various dimensions of identity, things like age and ability um, and how all of that may shape the definition, who gets to decide? Well, the definition of comparable work means that when you view the job compared to another job, you need to view it as a composite of skill, effort, and responsibility, and they need to be performed under similar working conditions. So when the court looks at an accusation that an employer has engaged in some sort of gender-based discrimination, they look at what is the totality of that job. For example, you could have a woman who is the VP of HR working in a corporation. And at the same level in the organizational chart, you could have a man working as the VP of accounting. The same number of people report to them. They both report to the president. That would be considered comparable work. When employers are accused of discrimination, there is an aspect of the law that does allow them to defend themselves by showing that if there is a pay difference, for example, between those two positions that are situated similarly within an organizational chart, that that difference is based on a seniority system, a merit system, some kind of system where that's measured by production, quantity, or quality, or perhaps some other kind of factor like education level or years of experience. It really is a much broader standard that really does take into account the modern workforce and the way that organizations are structured now. Madeline, you have a recent op-ed in the Connecticut Mirror, and you argue that this law has the potential to help reduce the wage gap and lead us to a more equitable workplace. How do you see this particular law moving us forward and being able to address what really is a long-standing challenge when it comes to employment? Yes, yeah, so I, I would say it's a step, right? It's definitely not the end of the journey. We Definitely don't want to get you know complacent here in Connecticut, but transparency in salary is really an important step forward because there's there's plenty of research out there, you know that that shows that when employers you know adopt transparency policies like what's outlined in the law on their own, you know the pay gap between men and women, you know like I just mentioned in the public sector, nearly disappears. You know we know that employers don't always do it on their own, and that's where the law comes in and where government can play a part. But there's also research that shows that, you know, policies that increase pay transparency also help to mitigate that unconscious bias of employers who often to hold all of the cards, right, in, in determining someone's compensation, which is a really important, you know, factor of, of your life as a worker and determining, you know, where, where you live, you know, how you pay your bills, how you support your families. So this is really a way to level the playing field, you know, in the salary negotiation process between workers and, and their employers. This is especially true for women workers early in their career. If you're not able to negotiate the salary that you deserve for the value of your work because the pay scale isn't transparent, you will lose out on a significant amount of income over the course of your lifetime. 
In Connecticut, for white women, it's around $400,000 over the course of a lifetime. For black women, it tops $1 million. $1 million. And that's just income. That's not even speaking to the theft of the opportunity to build wealth, which historically has been denied to black and brown women over the course of generations. Janae, you are in your first year as executive director of this organization. Congratulations first. And you've taken on these big issues that, as you said, historically, systematically have devalued the working presence of particular women. And so you and Madeline have both articulated the immediate impact that these kinds of laws and changes can have. But there are also some longer term benefits and consequences. You mentioned wealth building, for example. What does this mean, not just for the women who are in these positions, but what does it also mean for uh, the communities to which they belong that we start disrupting this notion of equity? That is a fantastic question. That is the question because we are all interconnected. No human being is an island unto themselves. We are all part of community. When we increase women's economic security, communities benefit. This is particularly true for women who are living with poverty or who are working class and have low income. When you increase the amount of money, the amount of take-home pay that these women have in their paychecks, they're not only better able to provide for themselves and their families, but it also provides an economic boost to the communities that they live in. People who are living paycheck to paycheck reinvest every dollar of their paycheck back into their local communities by shopping at local stores, you know, by paying babysitters who live locally. You know, this operates at a whole bunch of different levels. And we really need to increase the vibrancy of communities by ensuring women's economic security and also by doing things that increase the life cycle of their dollars within their community. And this is also particularly true for communities of color, where dollars tend to flow in, but then immediately be extracted from those communities. We have learned so much over this past 18 months about uh, how the pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on women. And it's not that women are leaving the workforce. It's often that they are pushed out because of things like child care or elder care or the tremendous vulnerability that already exists that is now heightened given this climate that we are in. And so in January 2022, Connecticut will have this new provision that allows 12 weeks of paid family medical leave. And that is possible because of the work of Quelf and a host of organizations and legislators and community members who have said this needs to be something that people don't have to worry about how they take care of their family, but they actually have the opportunity to do so. How do you see having paid family medical leave, and I keep emphasizing the family medical leave part of this. How do you see this addressing those longstanding challenges that you've mentioned and really allowing Connecticut to do something brave yet necessary? It feels a little surreal that it's taking, you know, effect in just a few weeks, you know, after years and years of advocacy and and really hard work by so many people to pass the legislation. But I will say, you know, women, especially women of color, still shoulder, you know, we know this, the majority of caregiving responsibilities in their families. And because of that, they often, you know, need to leave the workforce to care because our society, you know, overall is just not built to support working caregivers. There's also, you know, the sandwich generation, right, of women caring for their children 
um, and also elderly loved ones. And at the same time, you know, working a full-time job with little support, trying to pay their bills, keep a roof over their heads. Truer now more than ever, you know, as, as you mentioned, because of all of the disruptions from COVID-19. So lack of paid leave, you know, really contributes to the gender wage gap and, you know, lack of women's economic security in the long term. Because when women need to leave the workforce, right, they miss out on earnings that really contribute to their wealth, both in the short with their paycheck and every day, how they how they continue to stay financially afloat and in the long term with how they save for retirement and build wealth and all of that. So, you know, paid family medical leave is really proven, right, to improve worker retention, you know, this reduce costs to employers, right, related to turnover and, and, you know, hiring and retraining folks. And it most importantly, right, it keeps workers, especially women and women of color who are caregivers to their families attached to the workforce. You know, it goes hand in hand with equal pay and salary range transparency, because, you know, when women do have to leave the workforce and they want to come back, right, and reenter, access to paid leave helps them do that and stay attached to the workforce. And then transparency and pay, you know, helps them to know, right, what decisions are right for them and their family in terms of, you know, the next steps for their career. Those are really great points, Maddie. And paid leave, paid family medical leave is particularly important because it helps prevent women from being pushed out of the workforce. And we know that when women get pushed out of the workforce and have to take time off, when they try to re-enter the workforce, they're often lowballed salary ranges when they seek positions. So this allows women to stay in the workforce so that they can keep their jobs and not have to deal with trying to negotiate lowball offers. But if they do need to leave the workforce, the salary range law protects them when they come back. And this is one of the great examples that really shows us that women's economic insecurity, particularly for Black and brown women, in large part was created by policy, which means that it can be undone. By good policy. That idea that we have the opportunity and the obligation to counter that, and that there is the possibility and the opportunity for change that can have a generational impact, but also have a statewide impact. And this, from the two of you, sounds like something that benefits employees, but also employers. And so as we think about the future for Connecticut, as we think about the future of moving closer to economic justice, because this is really a justice issue, I'll ask each of you, what is one thing that you would like to see us work on or address in the future? And Madeline, I'll start with you. Yes, I mean, I can speak to kind of, again, an immediate solution that we know we want to continue to work on in our state. And maybe Janae can, can talk about like the longer term. But, you know, as, as we're looking at paid family medical leave and the wage gap, you know, one as, aspect of our law that we really fall short here as a state that I think folks might not be as aware of is, you know, we don't give enough workers access to that short term paid time off that they need, paid sick days. We were the first law state in the country to pass a law to require certain employers to provide paid sick time to workers, but it really only applies to employers who are 50 or more and only to service workers in our state. So the law is over 10 years old now, and it really needs, it was really important at the time that it was passed and it's helped a lot of folks, but it needs some improvements. And that's what we're looking forward to to working on next session, because all of this really works together to improve, you know, women's economic security for them and their families. Janae, what about you? Well, I'll start my my response by saying I loved that you called this a justice issue because that is the orientation we are taking when we think about long-term policies that will benefit women's economic security, especially women 
who have been historically disenfranchised or prevented from achieving economic security. And in addition to thinking about it as a justice issue, we're also thinking about it in terms of a reparations issue. issue. Restitution is owed for what was stolen. And as we think about that, we're really thinking this is going to be a long-term fight. What are the things that uplift women who have been historically discriminated against or marginalized and what helps them care for their families? Those are things like universal health care. Right now, so many people are one medical disaster away from absolute financial ruin. Low or no cost childcare, a significant portion of women's earnings goes toward childcare. Free college at every level, even through the graduate level. Also, we need to really think very critically about what actually lifts people out of poverty. And that is literally giving people money. We need to start opening the doors to have real conversations about guaranteed basic income. I appreciate that the work that the two of you are doing, the work of your organization focuses on what we can do in the immediate sense, and then what we need to do in a longer term sense to really sustain the innovations that are happening. Janae Woods Weber is executive director and Madeline Granado is policy director of Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. Thank you both for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.